the bad guy in this scenario because we were bad girls, but at the same time, we were sort of being victimized, you know, by older guys and stuff like that, even though the whole time we felt like we were in charge. Welcome to another episode of Horizon Music, the podcast. I am your host, Thea Wood. Our next guest is a musical and travel journalist, author, and synesthete, and we'll delve into that term shortly. Her new book, Glory Guitars, Memoir of a Teenage Punk Rock Girl, is a gut-punchingly direct look into a youth purposefully wasted. She's editor of Cramped, an anthology on the Cramps soon to be published by iconic art scene Murdy. She's also working on an oral history style book about lip gloss, the legendary dance night that transformed Denver culture. And recent bylines include a coming out moment in men's health, a rant in sci-fi about being sorted in Slytherin house, a practical guide to recreating synesthesia for okay whatever, and the retelling of her personal tragic doppelganger story for a literary journal called Monologuing. She was honored as one of Westward's 100 Colorado Creatives and 303's magazine's 70 Colorado Creatives, and she's the music lover who sees true colors everywhere. Please welcome Gogo Germain. Wow, thank you. That was a very, very warm welcome. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. Absolutely. We are warmly welcoming you to your first podcast interview. Isn't that right? Yes, you are breaking my podcast cherry right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we're honored, first of all. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing this sacred moment with us. <laughs> also, um, and, and, and of course, we want to start that off with a shakedown because that's a great way for our audience to get to know our special guests and what makes them tick musically and from their past. Are you ready to shake it down? I am so ready. Let's do it. First question is, who was your first concert? Okay, so this one is really funny and really random. Uh, my first concert was the Aquabats, and I don't know if you're familiar, but they're like this really goofy ska band, and they have like these, I remember like, I think they have space costumes, and they threw like an entire pizza into the crowd. It's a really funny choice because um, there was a lot of ska in my youth. You know, I grew up in the punk scene in the 90s, but then like as time wore on, I think a lot of us in the punk scene kind of like forgot about Scott and kind of like brushed it under the rug where like that was really goofy. <laughs> it's kind of like it was the guilty pleasure of that time. <laughs> right. um, and like my friend Jason Heller wrote a really good article on like the whole weird psychology of Scott. Um, I think it was for Vice. Um, it's worth reading. So yeah, sometimes when I admit that I'm like a little embarrassed because <laughs> it's just like, it's so goofy. <laughs> Back in the 90s, the Pie Tasters were one of my favorite bands. Oh yeah, they were totally good. And I feel like there are really good Scott bands and then there's some it just kind of like boils over into just ridiculousness which is also fun too and like yeah aquabats it was really fun well next question what was the first album you bought with your own money i bought a cassette tape of nirvana's nevermind of course <laughs> of course it's so on brand and so like i just remember um they were definitely the first band that changed my life i just i had never heard like this like hard sludgy type guitar before um, until I think my sister was playing it. And then I was like, oh my God, I need this in my life. It's in my memoir. I was absolutely obsessed with Kurt Cobain. You know, I just spent my days daydreaming about him and wishing I could be with him. But I, I'm pretty sure I discovered him too, like after he had passed away. So it made it even more romantic. <laughs> I was like, yes, of course. I'm with him. 
That's right. That's right. Well, okay. So that leads to the next question, which is what band or artist is in heavy rotation on your playlist right now? Ooh, idols. Um, I absolutely love idols. And this is another um, interesting thing about my musical taste because my book is super feminist. Um, it's all about riot girl energy. Um, it's about punk rock though in general. Um, and I was recently talking to uh, another reporter who was like, all of your choices are so like dude punk. <laughs> and I feel like idols kind of is in a way they're like, um, they, they come across as just really, they're kind of more post-punk, but very punk spirited. Um, but I just got obsessed with their latest album, Crawler. Um, it just, it was so cathartic to hear. And like the guy seems so macho. And at the same time, when you start to listen to his lyrics, they're all about like consent and they're really feminist. For me, it fought the hopelessness of these times. It just is kind of like a kick in the face in the best way. I love that. Okay, everybody put it on your playlist. We've got a, we've got a recommendation from Gogo right here. Which woman has had the most influence on your career? That's such a hard one because, you know, there are women in your everyday life and there are women that you're inspired by. Um, I think most recently, uh, Debbie Harry has been my celebrity inspiration <laughs> all around. She's amazing. Like um, she's like her music and her fashion. And I just look up to her and, you know, my um, I have a photo shoot that I've been using for the book and it's actually kind of inspired by this iconic photo shoot of her that Chris Stein did. It's all black and white and it's just amazing. Um, and so I just kind of always ask myself, like, what would what would Blondie do? What would Debbie Harry do? What would Debbie do? Yeah, what would Debbie do? Yeah. What would Debbie do? <laughs> what would Debbie do? I love it. Yeah. Okay, Debbie, that's a shout out to you. All right, next. If you could have dinner with any woman dead or alive, who would it be? Oh, gosh. I'm not going to overanalyze my answer, but my daughter. Oh, <laughs> she's my favorite woman, except for my mom. I love my mom too, but, and my sister. Now I feel like I have to name all my close uh, <laughs> women in my life. You know, I could choose somebody who is, you know, absolutely famous or has made a powerful change in the world, but I believe that my daughter will be that. And so it's going to be checking off both boxes of like, my personal favorite. And also I think that she's going to change the world. Her name is Camille. Camille. Hi, Camille. We believe in you. So our last question for the shakedown is what is one life goal you'd like to accomplish before climbing that golden stairway to heaven? Oh gosh. <laughs> I know it's such a big one. I, I think that honestly, this is going to sound crazy, but like the book that's coming out right now, Gloria Guitars, it's at this point in my life, at least, it's like the first time that I've had like a soul project that it's like, this is what I have to add to the conversation. Just the fact that it's coming out is, um, it's what I want in life. It's like, I would love to continue to, to write, um, writing. It's definitely a writing related goal. I just want to have my voice be part of the conversation. I guess if um, my words could actually change something for somebody, then I would be happy with that. That's all I want. Impact. Yeah. <laughs> Impact. Big word. Okay. Well, everybody, we survived the shakedown. <laughs> I feel so much lighter now. <laughs> it's like, yes, it's like an unburdening. Yeah. <laughs> well, with that said, what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break for a quick message, and then we'll be right back. 
Wavemakers Women in Music, we're changing the music industry for the better for women 40 plus. If you're a musician or a fan or a brand who cares about supporting women in music, you can find us at wwimusic.com. Sign up for our newsletter and for information about upcoming showcases and opportunities for musicians in your area. wwimusic.com. Hi, I'm Oliver, the sexy AI voice that Horizon Music created to invite you to sign up for Horizon Music the newsletter. Discover trailblazers and rising stars who work on stage, on air, and behind the scenes in music. Plus, you'll get notices on new podcast episodes, in-person and online events, and discussions about the issues that affect women in music. Click the newsletter link in the show notes or visit horizonmusic.substack.com. That's H-E-R-I-Z-O-N music.substack.com. Now, back to the show. And we're back. I'm talking with Gogo Germain, who is the author of Glory Guitars, memoir of a teenage punk rock girl. And the first thing that I'm going to ask you, Gogo, is where Gogo Germain came from, because that's your nom de plume, is it not? It sure is. Um, so I first, when I first started writing it, I was convinced that I couldn't write it without like a pen name. I thought that I would never like reveal that it was written by Aaron Barnes. And so Gogo Germain, I just wanted something that sounded that kind of captured the manic energy of the book. Um, you know, like the Go-Go's um, oh, yeah. kind of involved, like cute girl mania. <laughs> um, and then, I don't know, I always loved the word Germain ever since I visited Paris, the Saint Germain um, spot, but I thought if it was Gogo Saint Germain that I would sound like a stripper, <laughs> which is fine. There's actually a lot of strippers in the book, but I was like, I'm not a stripper and I don't want to be like an imposter. So I, I stuck with Gogo Germain. And then, yeah, and then I wrote the book. It helped me, it helped give me the courage kind of to summon this alter ego to write the truth. And, you know, I changed everybody's name too, just because I didn't want to like expose anybody um, or just put them on the spot. And then Finally, when it came out, I was like, wow, it's really fun to have this alter ego where you can explore your, I guess, your shadow side or your more obnoxious side, <laughs> your more authentic side. Um, so, yeah, I just kind of it's it's interesting because a lot of writers, if they have a gnome de plume, it's like they don't ever reveal their real name. But I also want people to know that this is real and this is authentic too. And there is a real person connected to it. It's not just like a fiction. Before we talk more about the book, there are some people who say, okay, there's punk rock girl, there's a riot girl. And by the way, that's all spelled with a G R R R L. Mm -hmm. Is there a difference? And, and how would you define the lifestyle? There are so many different ways to be punk. Um, and that was something that I struggled with and even putting punk in the title of my book or calling it a punk memoir um, because I've never been the type of person who wears like the punk uniform, who knows like the entire discography. Although I, I'm a music journalist, I know a lot, but like when I'm talking to really deep punk people, they're like, well, what about this B-side? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't think that's what punk is about. I think punk is the ethos. It's being countercultural. It's uh, being authentic and edgy and just being your authentic self and being a punk girl, especially, um, you know, think about X-Ray Specs or like Bikini Kill. You know, those bands were really good about 
being authentically themselves. They weren't trying to sing like punk guys. They were like screeching and, you know, they were being authentic. And so I think it's all about the ethos. It's not about like wearing a certain outfit or whatever. Um, But in terms of like being a punk girl versus being a riot girl, I incorporated Riot Girl into the book because I feel like it's like the easiest way for people to understand the ethos, I guess. Um, But I was not like an A-plus Riot Girl. (laughs) I don't know if you've seen like Moxie or any of those films like or read Girls in the Front. You know, Riot Girls was a movement that was like really based in activism and they were political and they were a lot of the times responsible too and fiercely feminist. Back in the day, it's funny because we did try to start a Riot Girl chapter and we listened to the Riot Girl bands. Um, so, you know, we listened to Sleater Kinney and Bikini Kill and all those bands and Hole and L7 and all these great bands. But like, and we tried to start a band, but we we were teenagers and we were more like interested in boys and partying. We were terrible feminists. So that's like my big, you know, caveat of calling it a Riot Girl thing is my, I guess my twist on it, I wasn't like ever like the super great riot girl. I was like, I was into the riot part of it <laughs> and, and the destruction. Yeah. We were like at parties. We were, and that's a lot of the book too, is it's not just about punk girls. Um, I think a lot of people can relate if they had just kind of any kind of crazy adolescence. It's these stories of like, how ridiculous it would get. You know, we would steal a cigarette from my best friend's dad. And there would be like eight of us that would go to great lengths to go to the middle of a field. And we had like lotion and perfume and we would all pass around this one cigarette, just taking a drag each. And like, then we'd have to deodorize ourselves and sometimes like take off clothing and put on different clothing just for this one cigarette. But I don't know, there was something about that time that was just so exhilarating for me. I wanted to go back to that place. Was there, in going back and writing this and researching and, and especially going through, the, you know, your memory archives, was there a story that you shared that was in particular something difficult to put on paper or to confront um, or maybe something that you hadn't even thought about in a long time that, that you could share with our audience? Yeah, in fact, that's like the entire meta story of the book (laughs) is um, I started writing this book and I was like, oh, like we were so precocious as teen girls. We were, um, you know, walking into liquor stores and buying booze and like we were so brave and it was kind of this like we, we were awesome. Like people were saying we were bad girls. And I was like, we were just really smart and we were really uh, precocious. And so it was kind of in that spirit of badassery that I started writing it. I had completely just blocked out any of the trauma that happened because growing up in the 90s punk scene in suburbia, in like this skate punk scene, I don't know if you've seen the recent documentary on Woodstock 99, um, but that actually paints a really good picture of like the rape culture that we were surrounded by. It was just super sexist. It was a super sexist time to be alive as a teenager and especially with skaters and punks and stuff like the ska guys were really nice. (laughs) And so, you know, I started looking back on that and realizing, wow, there were some really messed up memories of like, 
how how boys behave to me and like things that I hadn't even explored before where I was like, wow, that was not okay that like it was bringing forward these memories. I mean, they, they had always been there, but like just as an example, like the first time, one of the first times I got drunk, we like snuck out and we we're drinking 40s and then these two boys are like, we'll help you sneak back home. And so I was like super drunk, I passed out and they both were like, taking turns, like learning how to kiss a girl on me. And that was my first kiss. And um, Mm. I was like super drunk and, you know, they were taking advantage of me and I hope it's not triggering. I don't know if we need a trigger warning, but something like that. I honestly, in the time, in the moment, I was really upset about it. But then I kind of didn't really think about how that affected me at all. Um, until I re-examined it and I was like, wow, you know, maybe that has something to do as well. Like just the whole environment of like why we were so angry and why we were so um, punk rock, <laughs> what we were rebelling against. Because in the moment, I don't think that we knew. I just knew that I didn't feel like I fit in. And I'm so thankful that I had my girl gang. There's a girl gang in the <laughs> in the book and we were all like kindred spirits. We were in that together. And there were a lot of us too. It was a very large girl gang. Like there's only a handful of characters that I've highlighted who are my best friends, but it's really a story of best friendship. But I've had so many women who grew up in that time read it and just be absolutely like gutted, but in a good way, there's actually some people who can't read it. And is this in particular with things that happen to you or your girlfriends or both? Both. I think that it's triggering for them to remember, even though it's like a really fun book. It's it's really hard to describe because <laughs> it's it's manic. It's fun. There's chaos. It's it's very chaotic. Um, but the latest reviewer said she called it chaotic like five times, but she was like, but you're like so along for the ride. You just you don't care. It's like partying and and mania and like sneaking out. And then there are these like kind of moments that make you think. So yeah, I've had a few people who who read it and they were just like, wow, like it was really good. I have to like process this because it brought back so many memories and they've shared things with me. People in the book who, um, I have a friend in the book who, first of all, she like robbed a liquor store. I never knew <laughs> about her when she was a teenager. So like, Things have come out that we did, you know, that we were, we were the aggressors or we were the bad guys. We were the weird ones. Um, and then other things have come out of like, oh, this guy did this thing to me. Um, so, you know, it's for me, it's a weird exploration of like, who's who's the bad guy in this scenario? Because we were bad girls. But at the same time, we were sort of being victimized, you know, by older guys and stuff like that, even though the whole time we felt like we were in charge. Like we thought that we were badasses and we were, I mean, I still, I don't regret anything at all about that time. But yeah. So like when I was thinking about that, I was like, okay, I can't believe I was literally going to block out the hard parts. And that's really funny for a writer to do. I've been through writing school. Like we know those are the parts you are supposed to write about. (laughs) And I was like, I can't believe that was such a like amateur move. Like I even had to go back and be like, okay, I'm going to put it in here and here and here. And um, that's kind of where Glory Guitars came from. And I don't remember the exactly how the line goes because I'm a better writer than I am a speaker. 
but it's just like you you like to imagine this nostalgic youth. You like to imagine all of your teenage memories like awash in glory guitars. And then you're forced to reckon with the truth, which is not quite as glorified. Time has a way of making things, of sweetening and softening things. Mm -hmm. um, nostalgia is definitely uh, a thing. And I understand that. And, you know, I think for you as a writer, part of, you know, we say to ourselves, of course, you're supposed to write about the hard stuff. That's what makes it intriguing and heartfelt and really gets people. But at the same time, as someone like you who had a youth that was built on being tough and acting tough and so on and so forth, this means that you're becoming vulnerable. And that's not easy, especially to strangers. Oh my God. Absolutely. That is like such a huge thing for me. I just, I remember, yeah, one of the first beta readers, they were like, you know, you seem really cool, but that's boring. <laughs> like we need you to open it up, <laughs> open it up. Like who cares about some cool girls? We want to see some vulnerability and that's how you connect to people. Some people are just kind of trained to, to be tough and to not show their feelings. I was doing that really unconsciously going back and kind of cracking that open, it was really cathartic and it was really rewarding. And I remember I, I wrote it all in a week at this place called the Music District in Fort Collins, which is actually a really great thing for all of your listeners to know about. It's like this music incubator. Um, so they have like recording studios and they have like workshops and it's huge and it's really nice and state of the art. And they have um, like artistic residencies um, and it's in Fort Collins where the book was based. So I stayed there for a week and just like walked around and all the places that these things happened. But I do remember just being in this coffee shop. I think it's called Alley Cat. Tears streaming down my face. I'm like writing in public, just like bawling. And I didn't care. It was like, it felt really good. You know, you never know if it's actually going to help or not, but it absolutely did. It, it gave me perspective. It was kind of like therapy. And you say that growing up, you always felt a little different. And there is something very special about you. I call it your superpower. <laughs> you have synesthesia. I would love for you to explain to people what that means and how you personally experience it. So synesthesia is kind of a rare condition that some people have. It's a way that your brain is wired. You kind of cross your senses um, in different ways. And it can be really bizarre or it can be very normal. So um, the way that I discovered that I have synesthesia was kind of boring, but I see all letters in color in color. Like I see all letters and numerals in color and all names are in color. Like each person that I'm talking to kind of, I see like an aura. It's not like I actually see an aura, but they are associated with a color. So you're actually like navy blue. Oh, I am. Yeah. Yeah. I can tell anybody what their color is. Oh my gosh. I'm writing that down. Navy blue. You're navy blue. And it's more having to do with the, the letters. It's not like necessarily what I get from their energy or anything like that. But, but yeah, I remember like hearing about that and thinking, wow, you know, yeah, I have that. Isn't that how everybody thinks? <laughs> and then uh, I learned that it was really rare when I started talking to people about it. And um, the more interesting ways that it affects me is that I see all songs, like paintings, in my mind's eye. So I'm not like seeing a hallucination, but if I'm listening, I can actually even be with my eyes open and I'll see this beautiful painting that's happening and diff different textures, different colors. Um, 
And does it go along with the with the melody or with the rhythms? Absolutely. So if there's like a synth line, it might be like a blue line, you know, or silver line. Um, a lot of my songs exist in this like black room. <laughs> So I just, that's usually where they start in like an echoey black room. It's kind of like the canvas. And there are some painters like Melissa McCracken, worth looking up. She paints songs. So she'll be like, this is Creep by Radiohead or whatever. And to me, it's very accurate. Everybody's synesthesia is different, first of all. You know, they've done studies before to see if we're seeing the same associations. And we're not. It's completely subjective. I think a lot more people have it than realize. Um, if you've ever accidentally described something visual with a sound descriptor, like I might even say this song is cold, something like that is is a cross-sensory thing to say. Experience, sure. It's a cross-sensory experience. So I think everybody experiences it on some level. And usually once I tell people, oh, you're not actually hallucinating these things, like they'll be like, oh, I actually do have a little bit of synesthesia. I also feel songs, which is really fun. <laughs> so like if there's something that has pounding bass, I feel it here. Me too. That's awesome. So you have a little, little synesthesia. Um, yeah, songs with like really heavy guitars I feel in my brain, like in between my ears, like crunchy feeling. So listening to music has always been like a drug to me. <laughs> and it's like, no wonder I went into music in my career, but you know, I would just sit in my room for hours and listen to Nirvana. Um, and I know exactly what Nirvana looks like. What does Nirvana look like? What is that earlier album, Bleach? Um, it's like that black background. It's kind of like the negative x-ray vision where it's like white, searing white on top of black for a lot of the songs. I could feel the Nirvana songs a lot. I think that's why I loved Nirvana so much. Like heavy guitars I can feel um, yeah. in my body. So so yeah, it's it's really fun to have. I didn't realize that I had it for so long, when even when I was a music journalist. And so I would write about something and I would be like describing it so colorfully. And I remember my brother-in-law was like, yeah, I read your review in Westward and I checked out this band. They sounded like so colorful, and so amazing. And they were like really boring. <laughs> and I started to wonder, I'm like, am I an unreliable narrator? <laughs> Am I experiencing things like a little bit differently? And so I actually kind of stopped music writing for a while and I started writing about, you know, life and rebellion and sex and all these other things. And I finally had the courage to return back to writing about it um, a little bit, you know, because even if I have a different perspective, um, it's worth, it's worthy of sharing. Um, and in, in fact, it's maybe even more interesting to some people. Oh, absolutely. I think it's just a marvelous, uh, a marvelous talent. I would call it a talent or gift. The first person I met who had it was a woman in a color seminar that I went with. She, like you, saw words and letters and color. One day she was in the kitchen and her daughter walked in and said, hey, mom, just wanted to know, is Tuesday yellow? And she said, yes, it is. And then after she answered, which was very spontaneous, she realized, oh my gosh, my daughter has it too. I love that. Maybe there is a hereditary component. And not only that, but the word Tuesday was the same color for her that it was for her Ooh, daughter. I wonder if my children will, yes, have the same 
association. So that would be it's awesome. Very possible. So I thought that was such a great story. And she was the only other person who I knew who had ever met who had synesthesia. So when you mentioned wow. that, I thought, <laughs> wow, because for me, that would be such an incredible experience. I love color. I love obviously music. So having that combination to me sounds like a wonderful gift to have as far as enhancing your life. Yes, it totally, like once I learned about it, um, I actually started hanging out with um, one of my best friends. She's another writer um, named Amanda E.K. And we have so much in common and we realized that we both have synesthesia. And so we both sort of started exploring that side of ourselves. And it was like a beautiful time in my life of like, just being alone too. We would talk about it, but then we would just like, I would just listen to music and write down what I saw. And that act alone, it really opened up like so many synapses or something. It just like opened up all these neural pathways because I felt really alive. I felt but grounded at the same time. And I wrote three books in like a year on top of my day job. Wow. I kind of wanted to do one of those cheesy, like how synesthesia could crack open your creativity. Maybe I'll do it someday, <laughs> but I don't know. I think I want to do something a little edgier about it. I, I still want to write more about synesthesia and uh, my next book might be along those lines. I'm not sure yet. I'm, I'm trying to figure out, it's kind of like a stupid human trick where you're like, okay, everybody thinks it's interesting, but like, what can we actually learn from this? So when I figure that out, I will write a book about it. <laughs> okay. And what we'll do is we'll put a call out to the audience that if they experience synesthesia to get in touch with you, because this could be something that becomes some kind of a group movement where everybody works together. I would love that. Yeah. I think that would be a really fascinating you know, experience as a circle. I want, we're getting close to our wrap up time, which makes me so sad. I know. Interviews always go by so fast. I do want to know, though, from a writer's perspective, um, music lover perspective, women's perspective, what advice do you have for any woman who's thinking about entering music journalism or writing as a career? So this advice, I know right away what I want to say. Um, it's something that a lot of people say, but I just like didn't take it to heart myself. And I think that you should take this to heart, whoever is starting out as a music journalist or a writer or, or in music is um, certainly learn how to write the people who are teaching you and like your peers and your colleagues, but have your voice be the loudest and don't be afraid to say things how you want to say them and to explore the things that you would consider to be your guilty pleasure. I don't know how long I have been writing like I thought people wanted me to write. And it wasn't until I wrote Glory Guitars, really, um, and, the, and the articles that came out around then that I was being my authentic self. And that was like 15 years into my career um, because I thought it's kind of like um, Bikini Kill, right? It's like they were doing punk like badass punk girls. <laughs> and like they never, I, not that I know of, I don't think that they tried to be like the guys. And I did, I, I tried to be more, more intellectual and like I'm a very feeling person. And so just like accepting, you know, who you are and being who you are, learn from the greats, but then start experimenting with writing like you wanna write from the start as well, because then you'll be so much more ahead of the game. 
Thank you. Thank you for that advice. And oh my gosh, go, go, Jermaine. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. We're going to have all kinds of information on our show notes about how to get in touch with you, about your book, book sale, et cetera, et cetera. What I would like to ask is for those who aren't, uh, who are maybe jogging and listening to the podcast, just to put in their ear, what is the best website to visit to learn more about you and your writing? Um, I would say right now, gogogermain.com. So it's G-O-G-O-G-E-R-M-A-I-N-E. Please pre-order the book and let me know what you think of it. Like, I want to have a conversation with people. So I would love for people to reach out to me. Um, And you can do that through the website, too. You can um, actually email my publicist, who is actually me. (laughs) (laughs) That's Erin is your publicist. Yes, Erin is my publicist. (laughs) So email Erin and you'll get Go-Go. Just ask for Go-Go. Well, again, thank you so much for being on the show. And I know that we'll have future conversations. I would also like to thank our audience for being with us today. It's stories like yours, Go-Go, that inspire us to be dreamers, rule breakers, and rock stars. And until next time, it's a wrap. Horizon Music, the podcast, is produced by Fearwood Productions, based in Detroit, Michigan. Please see this episode's show notes for show credits. If you would like to connect your brand with music lovers, please email fear at horizonmusic.org. This podcast is the property of Fearwood Productions, Inc. and is protected by copyright law. Use of this podcast is for personal and non-commercial purposes only. No other use of this production, including and without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing may be made without prior consent from Fearwood Productions, Inc. Submit all requests to thea at horizonmusic.org.